Last week in our series on 1 Samuel, Saul committed his first folly. It was an impatient and unauthorized sacrifice in direct defiance of the word of God through the prophet. And as a result, he was told there that his kingdom would not endure. And what happens next in the text is that Jonathan, Saul's son, strikes the Philistines. And with the help of Saul's forces and some creative strategizing that sends the Philistines into panic, he wins a surprising victory. And our text this morning, from 1 Samuel 14, is a sort of behind-the-scenes account of some internal uh, military maneuvers that might not have been visible if you were just covering the battlefield. Some of you remember, I'm sure, the famous radio man, Paul Harvey. Uh, He would take an event, and then he would tell very interesting backstories, and always concluding the backstory with his famous tagline, Now you know the the rest of the story. With that pause, that long pause, now you know the rest of the story. Well, this text is the rest of the story about Israel's victory over the Philistines in the central hill country. And you'll also remember that Saul, we said Saul came into the kingdom by three stages, and he sort of commits three sins on his way out of having the kingdom torn from him. So this is Saul's second folly. So we'll look at the text under three headings. They're there on the back inside page of your bulletin. The oath, the altar, and the lot. So 1 Samuel 14. First then the oath. Right before our text, the verse before our text, the text says, So the Lord saved Israel that day. And our text starts with, and this is jarring, now the Israelites were in distress that day. They were in distress. They were hard-pressed because of Saul. Saul has turned the day of joy or the day of victory into a day of distress. Why? Well, because he had bound the people under an oath, under the threat of a curse, if anyone ate anything before evening. Now, see how woefully incompetent and foolish a commander-in-chief Saul is here. We know from a little later in the text that the Israelite army had pursued the Philistines some 20 miles west through the central hill country. So we're told this is an army whose strength is sapped. They're exhausted. Now surely this could have been anticipated by a good leader, and yet Saul has turned the day of battle into a fast day. A fast day. You'll notice Saul likes the trappings of piety. He's a big fan of this stuff. He seems a little superstitious. He's the kind of person who thinks, hey, if we do something spiritual, God will surely show us his favor. I mean, he has just had the kingdom torn from him. And so what does he do? He says, all right, God has announced 
that my kingdom is being torn from me, I think I will double down on my devotions. Maybe that will change his mind. Do something, even if the spiritual thing that he does is not commanded by God, like this fast. But who's going to oppose the proposal? Do you want to take the anti-spiritual discipline side in an argument with the king? Right? Someone comes up to you and says, you know, I think we should fast. You're not likely to stand up and say, I think that's a stupid idea. Especially if it's the king. So he imposes on hungry men a requirement that is not in the Torah. Apparently, he thinks this will bring the hand of divine blessing. And this is close to magic. Jesus is quite aware of this. Piety can easily slide into magic. Especially when the pious go above and beyond God's law. When they are holier than God himself. When they insist upon things that God has not insisted upon. When we went through the Gospel of John, I made this point repeatedly, right? It is this type of person who crucified Jesus. It's not liberal, nominal churchgoers who crucified Jesus. It's these sorts of people. It's not people who are casual and fast and loose with the truth and splattered all over the place. It's people like Saul. So there is in this kind of piety, uh, in this foolishness of Saul's, uh, uh, you know, an over-strictness. Think of this. He's the commander-in-chief of an army. All he really needs to do on this day, all he really needs to do is prevent overeating. <laughs> like, just prevent feasting. So how about this? How about imposing some sensible dietary restrictions for the sake of battle? No. He imposes a fast, and on top of this, he puts the people under an oath. He places them under a curse if they eat one thing. So he takes his man-made spiritual discipline very seriously. And thus he takes violations of it seriously. That's why he imposes this with an oath and a curse. It's as if his imagination is such that he can think of no military discipline to impose on the people except an oath and a nationwide curse. And so this opening note in the text is very ironic. Right, the narrator is great at this. In the past, we've been told that the Philistines had Israel distressed. The Philistines had Israel hard-pressed. But here, Saul is the source of the distress. His hyper-piety distresses people. It's like the Philistines as a kind of invasion on their liberty. It reminds me of Milton's word in, you know, in his famous poem at the time, the, uh, the Puritans, during the time of the English Revolution and the English Civil War, where Milton writes a poem, and the last line is, in the poem is that the new presbyter is the old priest writ large. Meaning, uh, let's just go back to Anglicanism and the bishops and our liberties. We're not really a big fan of these new Presbyterian Puritans and all of their laws. New presbyter is just like the old priest writ large. So the army, 
The army on this day finds itself in the woods, and wouldn't you know, there's lots of honey falling down and laying on the ground and oozing out, but no one would touch it because they feared the oath, which shows you they knew about the oath and they consented to the oath. But Jonathan wasn't present when his father administered the oath. And the text is very careful to let you know just how little, just how small an amount of honey Jonathan ate. It says he takes the end of his staff and he dips it in the honeycomb. And he puts it to his mouth. And the text says his eyes were brightened, meaning his strength was renewed. But a little bit more than that's at play here. The word for brightened is an ironic wordplay on the word for curse. Far from being cursed, my eyes lit up. And then one of the soldiers tells him about the oath. And that the oath is the cause of the army's exhaustion. And Jonathan then says to the soldier, Well, he is my father. And he's the head of the nation. And if he imposed an oath, and there's nothing sinful in the oath, and we know that we're due to obey all lawful authorities, then we should keep the oath. No. He doesn't say that. We would probably say that. Saul would certainly say it. But he doesn't say that, does he? He says, showing that the fifth commandment to honor one's parents has limits, he says, my father has made trouble for the country. He has muddied everything. Again, the word troubled is a wordplay on brightened. It's the opposite. It's to make things murky and unclear. See, Jonathan say, my eyes are bright. I speak with clarity. My father has murked everything up, mucked it all up. I'm living proof. He's saying there's no curse for eating the honey. And it would have been better, Jonathan said, if the men had eaten some of the plunder because we could have had a greater victory over the Philistines without a famished army. Notice that. It's a completely pragmatic concern. But you know, There's no hard and fast line between high moral concerns and pragmatic concerns sometimes. Pragmatic concerns can be very moral concerns. The effects of the laws you implement matter. And if they have bad effects, the the principle that you implemented should be revisited. That's what Jonathan is saying. It's a remarkable response by a son and a subordinate to both his father and the king. In public, he has no regrets that he ate. He has no fear of his father. Not only does the fifth commandment have limits, the text is teaching, but kingship is radically limited. We've already seen this. Not only is it limited, the king, even if he be your father, is open to serious public opposition and criticism. Here's the theological heart of Jonathan's argument against the situation that his father's imposed. This is it. I think you're all going to be able to follow this. The vow is dumb. 
It was deeply unwise. It was tactically harmful to the nation. Now, I've often said there are two times when you can disobey the civil authorities. One is when they command you to do something God has forbidden. You know, worship idols. Or when they forbid you to do something God has commanded. Don't preach the gospel. It's always lawful to disobey the civil authorities in those two cases. But though I haven't said it in public, the tradition, the Christian tradition has always known there are, there's a third, murkier, much fuzzier set of cases. Right? The civil authorities can impose laws that are so reckless and so stupid and so inane and have such deleterious effects that at some point the regime loses its legitimacy. And it's hard to tell exactly where that line is. There's nothing sinful in the law. There is nothing sinful in the oath. But the fact that something's not sinful does not mean it couldn't be stupid and ineffective and erode the legitimacy of the public authorities imposing such laws. It's a violation, Jonathan is saying, of basic common sense. Look at my bright eyes. Look at the fact that we would have clearly fared better if we hadn't if we had eaten something. I mean, how unspiritual is Jonathan's response here? There's no discourse from Jonathan on when oaths can be broken. He doesn't doesn't start with, well, he's the king, we have to submit. He's my father, we have to obey. There's only some cases, and the oath is not sinful, and even though it's ill-advised, we should submit to the authorities. Here's his argument again. I ate, I'm fine. So much for your oath. I ate, I'm fine, so much for your curse. He simply treats the oath as stupid, reckless, making trouble, not brightening the people that it was imposed on. I suggest that almost nobody I know would do this in this case. We would all say, yeah, it's a dumb oath, but, you know, there's lots of dumb laws. So that's just the entryway into this. The second point, and it's another location of folly, is the altar. So the army's exhausted. The day is ended. The ban is lifted. So they pounce on the plunder, and they start butchering animals all over the ground. And they ate them, the text says, together with the blood. Now, this is a real problem. This is an actual massive violation of the Torah. right? The blood made atonement. You're not supposed to eat it. Saul's told about it, and of course Saul is pious, he's, super car- he's afraid of Torah infractions, so he has a large stone brought so that the slaughtering can occur there, so that the blood can be drained properly, so that no meat will be eaten with the blood in it. But you notice, if you're a careful reader of this narrative, Saul cluelessly fails to see any connection between the famished army's violation of the Torah and his earlier oath. So what does he do? The text tells us he builds an altar to the Lord. The more he turns aside from God, the more he clings to the forms of godliness. So we get a good indication of his heart when after the men have eaten, after this Torah violation has been rectified, he issues an order. And it's a foolish order. Just like the oath was foolish, so is this order. Here's the order, though. It sounds spectacular. 
Let's go now. In other words, now that we've eaten, now that we've corrected the Torah violation, let's go, pursue the Philistines, plunder them till dawn, and not leave one of them alive. Again, he sounds so zealous for the right things. But in his case, it's a sign of being bankrupt, an interior bankruptcy. He want, he's thinking, let's finish the job. Let's go the extra mile. Let's fully vanquish the enemy. Right? He's got a lively, active faith. But it's a dumb idea. The army's tired and fatigued. They've already won a great victory. So he's losing his men with every decision. You know how they respond to this hyper-zealous speech about regrouping and hunting down the Philistines? This, this rousing address? It's in verse 36. And you can guess the tone of voice. Here's what they say. Do whatever seems best to you. Right? Do, do whatever seems best to you. It's almost as if they know whatever seems best to you, like whatever is right in your own eyes, that's Saul's standard. This is an army which lacks any bond with its leader. When, when Jonathan had won the victory, his armor bearer said to him, I am with you, heart and soul. Saul's army says, what, do, whatever, do whatever seems best. He's managed, this man has managed to demoralize the people of God on a day of great victory and joy. So there's a priest nearby, and the priest hears about this plan to go hunt down the Philistines. Yank the army back into battle, and the priest says, hey, why don't we inquire of God? The priest is concerned about Saul's impatience. And so Saul, Saul's fine with that. He likes public acts of piety. So he says, sure, let's do that. So they pray they get no answer from God. It's like they get nothing but an ominous silence, as if God is not going to play along with this charade of piety. And that brings me to the third point, the lot. Saul is, it appears embarrassed, or at least uncomfortable, with this silence for God, from God. And so what does he do? He gathers all the leaders of the army and says, let's find out what sin has been committed today. So again, there's a really pious-sounding logic to all this, right? God did not answer. There must be a reason for his silence. Surely somebody must have sinned. And this state of affairs, of course, could not be my fault, Saul thinks. right? What have I done? I've just made sure people don't, are not overeating. You know, I've made sure we have an oath. I've made sure that we sacrifice right. Make, I've advocated that we go kill all the enemies. I've prayed in public. I'm on the side of the angels here. I'm on the side of the angels. Surely somebody else must have sinned to have the nation in this situation. So, so it's, it's, this is one of the places where the narrative is tragic, but almost comedic. Because what does he do next? What does Saul do next here? He imposes another oath on the people. Another oath on everybody. He doesn't see any problem with the first oath. So he says, hey, why don't I impose a second oath? If the first extra-biblical law does not succeed, how about a second extra-biblical law? As surely as the Lord who rescues Israel lives. Wow. Saul's very serious. He's good at praying in public. He looks good. 
As surely as the Lord who rescues Israel lives, even if the guilt lies with my son, Jonathan. Right? Obedience to God is greater than the covenant. The blood of the covenant is greater than the ties to my family. Even if the guilt lies with my son, Jonathan, he must die. Wow. There's nobody committed like Saul. The commitment's amazing. Very pious. Even if it's my own son. Right? He's the most pious guy in the room. And he wants to make sure everybody knows it. Again, no scenario in his mind, none, where he's the problem. You can just hear the army now. Yay, another oath. Whatever seems best to you. God is silent, and now the text tells you this. They are silent. Not one of them, the text says, said a word. That's, that's Hebraic humor. Not one of them said a word. He's lost the army. He's not even aware of it. Their attachment to him is purely formal. So then he divides them into two camps. He puts the whole army on one side. He takes Jonathan and himself on the other side. They use the two stones from the high priest's breastplate. We're really not sure how this process worked, but it was, it's akin to drawing lots. right? And they cast the lots, and the lot falls on the Saul and Jonathan side. Then they cast the lot again, and finally the lot chooses Jonathan. You'll remember that when Saul offered his unlawful sacrifice at Gilgal, Samuel comes and says, what have you done? Now Saul uses the same language to Jonathan. Tell me, what have you done? What have you done? Again, Saul's unaware of the irony in this. We know, the narrator knows. But Jonathan, his reply is surely intended to bring out the absurdity of the whole scene. He says, I tasted a little honey with the end of my staff, and now I must die. I mean, who could question the wisdom of capital punishment for eating a little bit of honey? Not Saul, for sure. Not Saul. Because Saul has an inhumane, twisted commitment to what he thinks is high principle. And his logic, again, it's impeccable. The sacredness of the oath and the name of God is at stake. Right? There is always a set of people who have impeccable logic, which is both impeccable and absurd at the same time. And you can never convince them of the absurdity of it. Saul is one of these people. He's taking the high ground. Who cares if the sacredness of a divine oath is at stake? Who cares if my son has to be sacrificed? The public good of the nation is at stake. So what does he do? Now here we're in the realm of, almost in the realm of farce. He takes a third oath. There's a third oath in the text. May God deal with me, be it ever so severely, if you do not die, Jonathan. I mean, this is a father committed to the sacredness of oaths and covenant sanctions. It is also a father who's a lunatic. But he can't tell the difference. So at this point, Saul's piety, in which he still sees no flaws, 
has led him to treat the blood of animals with more respect than the blood of his son. And something remarkable happens in verse 45. This is remarkable. The men, the army present for this, they tell Saul, get lost. They say, no. It's a populist rebellion. Jonathan brought about this great deliverance. Should he die? Never. And with an ironic twist, yeah, you won't believe it. They take an oath. (laughs) They impose an oath on themselves now. As surely as the Lord lives, not a hair of his head will fall to the ground. You know what that is? That's a not-so-veiled threat to the king. If you touch him, we will kill you. Wow. For he did this today. Right? You asked Jonathan when the lot fell to him, you said, what have you done? The army says, we'll tell you, Saul, what he did. He did this deliverance that was wrought against the Philistines today with God's help. Again, note how politically limited the kingship is. The people just tell the king, no. It's a remarkable text of resistance and of civil disobedience from some 3,000 years ago. The people refuse the outcome of the king's pious oath. And the text tells us that they ransomed Jonathan that day. They rescued him from the erratic and fanatical piety of his father, and he was not put to death. So let me conclude. Should be obvious, the conclusion, but here's the conclusion. Saul is a moral object lesson for us. And I think the lesson is obvious. And it applies to us all, especially to parents and especially to church leaders. It applies to all of us. It is a great sin to require more of God's people than God himself has asked for. Right? And that is what Paul's piously intended oath does. Right? That's what he does. It's always zealous, sincere piety which does this. And we know that when you place unbiblical requirements on people, there are unintended consequences, usually bad ones. When you place the law front and center, you tend to get sin. This is something that's deep in Reformed theology, but I'm not sure we all believe it. So the first oath here about the fast... It leads to this whole array of unintended consequences. Notice what happens. They go from having no food allowed, no food allowed, they're under the ban. Once the ban is lifted, boom, they gorge themselves on food. That's a familiar story, right? Obedience to man-made rules creates a backlash, which leads to massive disobedience of God's actual law. Right? There's something about human laws. Notice this. It's not just human laws. There's something about the divinely inspired Torah of God, apart from grace, which actually generates rebellion. Right? The law was given so that sin might increase. Forget, forget extra biblical laws made up by men. God's own law, apart from the sovereign freedom of the Spirit, will actually generate rebellion. And so there's a long history in the church of children rebelling. 
usually against over-strict parents or of church members abandoning the faith because their leaders were legalistic and petty. Right? Human regulations have created a 2,000-year history of backlash. It takes, but we, we're slow on the feedback loop to learn the problem. Harsh, unfeeling commandments like this one. Again, there's nothing sinful in Saul's commandment. It's cloaked with piety. He's the just authority. But he's doing something where God has not spoken, and it produces rebellion. Notice what happens in the text. Saul gets the exact opposite. The exact opposite of what his oaths and his prayers and his sacrificial precision and his lots and all of his religiosity want. He gets the exact opposite of what he intends. So as I said, it's a lesson for leaders, I think. We must communicate. First and foremost, the, the joy, you know, the surprising invasion of grace, abundant and free and lavish in Jesus Christ in the gospel. The wonder of this thing, the vastness of it, the generosity of it, the lack of proportion of it, the stunning way it turns all of our legal calculations on their head and dumps them off. Right? That has to be communicated, especially to people under our charge. This doesn't mean you can't make up rules. No institution can run without rules. You're not, you're not restricted to, to just the explicit words of the Bible. But the point is, the rules have to be infused with the spirit of the gospel. Right? They should be few. They should be humane. They should be reasonable. You should be able to remove them or correct them. They should be clearly subordinate to the scripture. We want people to hear this from us, right? And Saul's troops don't hear it. For all of this piety, there's just no gospel in it. So what we do, as always, is we point to the one who came to fulfill the law, who took the law seriously, and yet says to you this morning, my yoke is easy. My burden is light. Saul's yoke is heavy. We point to the one who sets men free, not only from our sins, but from the commandments and dictates of men. Right? This is where liberty of conscience starts, with a sort of jealousness about commands that are in addition to God's word, especially in the realm of Oaths, vows, public worship, and the like. We point to Jesus Christ, who, unlike Saul, is an obedient king, and also, unlike Saul, makes obedience a delight. We heard it in the New Testament reading this morning. It's a beautiful way to conclude this this sermon, I think. Um, John says in his first epistle, this is love for God, to keep his commands. There's no lawlessness implied here. Every command of God must be upheld. We want to keep his commands, and in Jesus Christ, his commands are not burdensome. Right? They're the way of light and life and peace. Amen.